Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Over 250,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 33rd episode, our guest is Nathan Rabin. But before we get to that, I need to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor. For you, the listeners of the Rob Burgess Show podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. A book which pertains to this episode is ICP Behind the Paint by Violent J and Hobie Eklund. Whatever book you pick, you can exchange it at any time, you can cancel at any time, and the books are yours to keep. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show for your free audiobook. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available. Whether it's iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, or RSS, you can find links to everything on the official website, www.therobburgessshow.com. You can also find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Back to today's show. Nathan Rabin is a columnist, pop culture writer, and the author of five books, most recently, Seven Days in Ohio. Trump, the gathering of the Juggalos, and the summer, everything went insane. And now, on to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, first of all. I really appreciate it. No problem. It's my pleasure. There's nothing I enjoy more than talking about myself. <laughs> well, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I have to say up front, I'm a little bit intimidated to talk to you only because I, I figured it up the other day, and I, I have actually been reading you half my life now. So I started when I was uh, 16, and, and I haven't really stopped since. So uh, you've kind of been a constant voice in my head uh, ever since I was in newspaper class, uh, you know, stealing time wasting time on the onion and the av clubs so. oh that's awesome yeah it's crazy i mean there's part of me at one point that would be like i feel so old how could people possibly have grown up on what i was <laughs> but it's like you know i've been doing this for 20 years uh that is a pretty long time mm-hmm. and in 20 years people can grow up an awful lot it's kind of like those you won't believe how long ago the movie back to the future came out <laughs> it's like well yes i think we understand the chronological progression of time yeah uh, it can be weird, and, and you know, uh, I think the mind is kind of myopic in how it records time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that is that is a strange a whole subset. Mm-hmm. Of you, 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 you will never believe how long ago the movie Space Jam came out. <laughs> actually, like, I, yeah, I would. Nineteen ninety six. I remember it pretty well. It was about twenty years ago. It was a very nineteen ninety six movie. The whole phenomenon. It was very nineteen ninety six. Yeah. Oh, but but you, you've heard, of <laughs> course, that they're uh, they're re- redoing that with. Uh, isn't it LeBron in the place of... Uh... LeBron James. That's, that's true. Yeah, it's funny. I actually did uh, Space Jam as the first century in my uh, column for Gossesters. Hmm. Uh, the whole premise of that was, you know, these are movies that were very, very successful at the time, and then they have been forgotten uh, in the interim. And what I discovered about writing about the movie Space Jam, and particularly writing very negatively about the movie Space Jam, because it's the worst, <laughs> uh, is that Space Jam is actually the most remembered movie in the world, and the most loved movie in the world, and that if you're like between the age of like 20 and 26, yeah. and you're like a dude, and you, I mean, I, I collected basketball cards, I worship Michael Jordan, uh-huh. it's like the seminal, pivotal like, uh, mo- uh, movie in, in, in society, uh-huh. and that's 
that's kind of fascinating, and I, and I kind of understand that. Uh-huh. You know, I kind of my my whole career has kind of been dedicated to examining why we're so emotionally attached to weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that kind of hits the nostalgia sweet spot mm-hmm. really hard. And the fact that it's just utter utter garbage uh, <laughs> is kind of uh, irrelevant, sort of, because people's psychological attachment to things a lot of times, yeah, they have very little to do with those uh-huh. things good and everything to do with where they were in life at the time and their hormones. Yeah, and, you know misremembering things sure. and changing and evolving and which is why it's kinda nice to kinda go back and watch stuff that was really important to you mm-hmm. when you were younger and be like, Okay, this still really speaks to me. Mm-hmm. Like I just uh watched the movie uh Wayne's World mm. for a column that I do for uh Rotten Tomatoes called The Simpsons Decade. It's about nineteen nineties comedy. Mm-hmm. And I've come to really hate Mike Myers mm. uh since that movie came out with with, with kind of a, a, a personal hatred. Mm. Uh he seems like kind of a horrible human being. Uh, some of his movies, I, I feel personally offended by. Like, there's a level of, of uh, self-indulgence yeah. in The Cat in the Hat in uh, Austin Powers' Gold Member that, like, literally made me angry. Like, I remember sitting in the theater watching those movies, like, feeling, like, I am mad that this man is allowed to, to, to make films that are this bad and this self-indulgent and this lazy and this hackneyed. But Wayne's World is friggin' great. It's, mm. it's a wonderful movie. It's really funny. And it's one of those things where if you can uh, single out one or two things in a movie that don't work, uh, that's really great. Because it says that pretty much everything else did. And in that, like, the only thing that I didn't like about it that I felt like didn't hold up were Lara Flynn Boyle's character, who's mm. kind of stalking uh, Mike Myers. Mike Myers. Wayne. Wayne. He's not Mike Myers. He's lovable old Wayne. <laughs> I can always love Wayne. I hate Mike Myers. But I love Wayne Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a gag where um, a cop uh, is a little too enthusiastic uh, in giving uh, Rob Lowe a cavity search mm-hmm. to the point where he walks a little funny. Uh, so I'm like, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's kind of a kind of a, a gay panic joke. Uh, <laughs> not funny then, not funny now. But again, you know, two bits that don't work in a 90 minute movie, and a whole lot of stuff that's just great and hilarious mm-hmm. and funny and memorable, like. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I, the sequel didn't work quite as well. I didn't think, but I did. I did, I did like the sequel, and I liked the uh, the the Soviet Union stuff, and I liked uh, uh, Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. But I like Christopher Walken and everything, including uh, the movie Country Bears, <laughs> which, is, which is a real a real tour de force. For Christopher Walken. <laughs> uh, I will tell you without it without a a, a, a a bit of irony. But he he makes that movie in the same way that I get back to my. Michael Jordan, uh, Crispin Glover as the bad guy really makes the movie like Mike. Uh-huh. Uh, do you remember the movie like Mike? Uh, it, vaguely. It's it's not one the pantheon of my favorite movies, but yes, I do remember it. <laughs> it was an important movie for your generation. <laughs> and what happened was, and it was based on a true story, I know the guy who it happened to. Hmm. Uh, there's an orphan and he finds Michael Jordan's magical shoes and then he's great at playing basketball. Uh, and uh, Chris Glover is the bad guy who's like a villainous uh, orphaneer, which is a word I think I just uh, invented to describe somebody who uh, takes care of orphans. Orphaneer. Or, yeah, or, or runs, runs an orphanage of some sort. And there's a great scene where it's like, oh, we got lots of orphans. Black ones, got the white ones. Grab yourself an orphan. Yeah, and I think that was probably his, his most personal work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Glover is work as a guy who wants to steal Michael Jordan's medical shoes in the little Bow Wow vehicle like Mike. Wow. And it was successful enough that there was a sequel there. They directed it to, to, uh, to video sequel. Uh, hopefully they found Mike Scotty Pippen's shoes. Like, yeah, these aren't as good, but I'm still a pretty good basketball player. Yeah, well, I mean, where do you go after Mike? better than Will Perdue or Bill Cartwright. That's like the <laughs> sixth and seventh sequel. They're like, okay, these two are making me a little bit better than I am already. Might be time to retire the franchise. Yeah, exactly. Diminishing returns and all that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, I actually just finished this morning your uh, Seven Days in Ohio book, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, uh, it, what inspired me to to get it was actually your Medium article about how it was uh, not the success you hoped it would be, which I, <laughs> which I uh, was, I felt kind of guilty because I was like, you know, I've I've been 
enjoyed his work for years. I, I'm sure I won't miss 99 cents. And I didn't. I, you know, and I've never gotten to something, the end of something you've written and wish I hadn't read it. So I feel like anyone who's listening should definitely go pick it up because, you know, it's definitely worth 99 cents. Um, Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's the thing. That's my, uh, it's my fifth book. Uh, and I feel a little bit weird calling it a book uh, because it's a whole lot shorter uh, than my previous ones. And, it, you know, uh, I guess direct to uh, direct to Kindle mm-hmm. uh, would be the word for it. Um, but I am super proud of it. And I mean, again, I think uh, a lot of my audience, uh, they're college kids, they're in their 20s, they don't have a great deal of money. And you're asking an awful lot to ask somebody to spend $15, $12, $14 on a book. I mean, I love books, and it's very rare that I spend, uh, you know, uh, buy a book new. But 99 cents, I feel very very, very comfortable mm-hmm. asking people to spend 99 cents on it. And I feel like it's very much worth 99 cents. It actually wasn't a dollar ninety-nine for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I kind of felt, yeah, you got it kind of kind of moved the needle. And I, the thing is, I don't think of it as a failure on any terms. I just kind of hoped that it would do a little bit better financially. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's one of the things is uh, the finances of publishing, of entertainment, of pop culture and media are absolutely bewildered. Um, and I've, I've been in this business for a very long time. I've been writing books for it's been almost a decade since I got my first uh, contract uh, from Simon & Schuster, from Scribner. You know, it's been almost 20 years since I started writing for uh, The Onion. Um, and again, I just kind of feel like I'm kind of groping about blindly. And I have, I mean, I have a great agent. He's been really wonderful. He's so interested in me after all this time, uh, which is amazing. I still seem to think that I have a, a future as an author, uh, which is amazing and exciting. Uh, I think the only standards by which uh, it was a failure is that it didn't make a great deal of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's true of all of my books. And I really think of none of them as, uh, I mean, I think how I, I get to write books and they connect with people and people still read them. And that is a really wonderful thing. And I'm super duper proud of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish the finances were a little bit different. And, you know, I mean, again, you always kind of have to, uh, I feel like I have to sell every single book. Uh, almost, you know, I'm like a, like a, like a door to door salesman. And actually, now that I speak about this, at the height of my desperation, uh, as an author, I think it was in 2010, I actually did that. I actually made a short documentary where I sold my book door to door. And it was very weird and very uncomfortable and very strange and almost like, uh, this masochistic ordeal that I was putting myself through. Sounds like. And kind of, yeah, I mean, kind of metaphorically too. It's kind of like, I was like, man, it was really hard to sell books, even when you have so many things going for you. And you know, in the Medium article, I talked about the Big Rewind, where you know I got a hundred thousand dollar advance uh, from Scribner, and Scribner, you know, they published people like Stephen King, Chuck Klosterman, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway. I mean, they are you know the best of the best, mm-hmm. uh, and they got an amazing launch, and they got a great you know uh, front page uh, review in the New York Times, and I was you know uh, on NPR, which like a huge thing um yeah and i kind of felt like oh man like this is my chance this is my opportunity like if this doesn't happen then do i have a future as an author well Uh, we should we should say for people that have not read the big rewind it it, and i'm about 200 pages into it right now i haven't finished it yet but i'm I'm most of the way through and and you're very candid about your own life it goes downhill from there. It's, it's, it's a it's a raw it's a raw book. It's very very personal and it's very very uh, revealing. And I feel like I know a lot about you now just having read what I have of it. So, I mean, um, you know, so if you're selling that door to door, that's that's probably an extra layer of you know. What I mean? Oh, totally, totally. Well, and also, I mean, so the thing that was kind of it was just kind of like, well, if having this huge machine behind me doesn't sell it, if you know, being interviewed by like Ronald Reagan Jr. on Air America Radio uh, doesn't sell it. Like the freaking New York Times. I'm like, that's got to account for something really, really special too. I mean, like that doesn't happen for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, talking to my to my editor and being like, yeah, we can, we kind of hope that that would be a bigger bump uh, than it was. So yeah, I think by selling it door to door, I wanted to go from 
uh, the, I guess, disappointment or, or kind of underperformance of my book being this kind of abstract thing where it's like, okay, I sense that people aren't buying my book because I check my Amazon rating every five minutes um, <laughs> to, okay, I know that people aren't buying my book because there's somebody standing here looking very uncomfortable being like, who the hell are you? Why on earth would I want to buy your book? Like, why do you think anybody... And, and that's, you know, I kind of had an existential crisis where I did think to myself, like, why did I think that everybody should buy my book? Why did mm-hmm. I think that it should be a bestseller? Why did I think it was like big mainstream thing? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's because I was very hopeful and I was understandably very hopeful. And when people make a big investment, you know, in terms of money, in terms of time, in yeah. terms of energy, uh, like that's, that's a big thing. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, it, it took me a while to kind of have the perspective to go from being like, I wrote this book and I was super excited about it. And, and, you know, my agent was super excited about it and it just underperformed mm-hmm. and to being like, I wrote this book and it was an amazing experience and people are still reading it. And you know, the, the commercial performance of something really shouldn't determine whether or not it's considered a success. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, again, you kind of look at the 1950s, like one of the most popular recording artists in the world was Pat Boone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. When, when, when was the last time that you heard anybody refer to Pat Boone as anything other than like, you know, sort of a touchstone for American racism? <laughs> uh, and, the, and the man who like, is probably the nadir of, you know, a, a corny white dude watering uh-huh. down a black music. Uh, and making it, you know, some, some, uh, some, that's why shit. Uh, <laughs> no, it's like the same thing, you know, like the airport movies were, were huge in the 1970s and nobody, you know, nobody watches them today. They're mm-hmm. only kind of referenced, uh, you know, in the stuff that people do talk about. And I'm not saying that like, you know, my books are, you know, some sort of huge cult touchstones or whatever, but mm-hmm. I take some, uh, I've stopped viewing success through financial or money. Well, I'd like to think so. I, I would like to think so. My brain probably hasn't done that. I'm really not that zen. Uh, <laughs> I think and that's, that's yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's the thing is I feel like because I've written, I've written three memoirs and I've kind of have all three have sort of happy endings. Mm. And I feel like any happy ending, both in terms of like literature or in life, is um, conditional. Because then the next day comes, mm-hmm. and you never know what crap uh, the world is going to going to throw at you uh, the next day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's been it's been a really fascinating journey, and I think that's the healthy way to look at it. Like this very very long ongoing right. uh, path, you know. Uh, and and I mean, I don't know. I, I saw a fish show uh, last week, and that always makes me kind of reflective, and you know, sort of thinking about life and sort of the big picture. And, you know, when you go to his show, memory is very big. You think about where you were when you heard these songs, sense memory. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I was really kind of thinking, like, I'm 40 years old. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm taking better care of myself because I want to be alive as long as possible for my son uh, and my wife. Uh, like, God willing, I can write for 40 more years. Mm-hmm. You know, this is time, you know, or this is like the first third uh, of my career, like I'm really excited about all of the things that, you know, might happen in the future, Mm -hmm. and I'm really proud of all the things that have happened in the past, Right. and yeah, I'm trying my damnedest to live in the moment, which Mm -hmm. I think is, yeah, most important thing in the world, especially as as, as a father, I feel like you owe it to your children Mm -hmm. uh, to be there, you know, and to not be thinking about mistakes you've made or what you hope happens in the future, I mean, you need to be there. Mm -hmm. 100% Mm-hmm. 100% of the time with 100% of your emotional investment. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I totally agree. And, you know, becoming a father myself, you know, I feel like it definitely is a big perspective shift because, I mean, you can really spend a lot of time thinking about yourself when no one needs you like that, you know, but when, that's, as soon as you're... That's a luxury to be selfish. Yeah, exactly. So, but I think that's one of the things that, because I've been reading your um, your daddy blog uh, things on that mom.me. It's, it's, it's a mommy blog. Oh, it's a mommy blog? <laughs> yeah, I, I always heard it as a mommy blog. I just figured, you know, they literally have mom. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I think of myself as a mommy blog. Yeah. Also, like, there, there aren't a lot of dads on there. Uh-huh. I think I'm definitely, it's definitely more of a mommy blog. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a male mommy blogger. <laughs> well, well, uh, well. 
I'm probably the only person who's going to, to use, uh, who's going to reference Deuce Bigelow, uh, Neil Bigelow. Uh, but there's one running joke in there that somehow never gets old and is extremely funny, which is just uh, Eddie Griffin referring to himself by like gender switch pronouns. <laughs> so he's not, he's not a pimp, he's a he madam. So just as just as Eddie Griffin is not a pimp, he's a he madam. I'm not a daddy blogger. I am a male mommy blogger. That's a very important distinction. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to think back because, I mean, some of the ones that have hit me the most are, uh, you talked about your, uh, your mother, uh, you know, not being in your life as, as a kid and, you know, you now having a kid and, and not being able to imagine that. I think that's the thing with becoming a, a father. It's almost like you, you, it, it's not that you, I guess before I became a father, I thought like, maybe I'll understand with these things that, you know, if, if I have a problem with my parents, maybe I'll understand it better now that I'm a parent. But it's like some things I'm like, like now I understand it less that this happened. Yeah. Doesn't that well, I mean, happen I, I think, to you? I mean Oh definitely. I mean that's it is I think it, it kind of it radically expands kind of uh, who you are as a person. You mm-hmm. kinda of develop all of these things that you didn't have before. But it also, you know, kind of reconnects you to the past in a very intense, uh, very direct way. And uh, yeah, I mean I think, you know, one of the wonderful things about life is you forget uh, about things and you will have this intense, intense pain or, or frustration. Um, and then you will forget it. I mean, I, uh, one of the interesting things about, um, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, Facebook, you know, they have those, uh, you know, like memory jumps or whatever, mm-hmm. whether it happened three years ago or five years ago. So, yeah, and sometimes it'll be stuff that I've completely forgotten about. So, like, I remember, uh, I think it was just a couple of days ago, it showed uh, five years ago a picture of me and Patton Oswalt and this family in Chicago. Mm. And it was like, oh, yeah, five years ago I filmed a pilot for, like, a what would have been an 80 Club video where, uh, like, a prominent author would, like, come to the house of a uh, fan and they would do, like, a private reading and they would eat pie and have dinner and it would be charming and funny mm-hmm. and awesome. And yeah, we went so we filmed one with uh, Pat Oswald and it went great and it went nowhere. <laughs> it was never picked up, like nothing happened beyond I had this great experience. Like, And then they had one for three years ago when I was at the home of Robert Evans. Mm. Uh, legendary Hollywood uh, personality, producer, uh, you know, the kid stays in the picture. Of course. Um, and I was at his home and, you know, he, I was theoretically advising him on his follow-up memoir, mm. uh, Fat Lady Sings. Mm. God, I, I feel terrible about this. Um, and both of these things were, uh, like, nothing came of them. Like, I wanted to have an ongoing relationship with Robert Evans. I wanted to, like, you know, I don't know, do something with him, write a coffee table book with him. At, mm. at least, you know, get, get, get a Christmas card uh, every year for Robert Evans. And, you know, I, I think I, I, I took one of his, uh, his hand towels uh, I got permission to do that, and I wrote a piece that I was super duper proud of. Uh, that ended up being published in the Playboy, I think, mm. like a year later, and getting almost no response. Mm. Uh, and so, both of these things were things where, like, they didn't have the desired effect. But looking back at them, I'm so proud that they happened, yeah. and it's so utterly surreal that it happened. Mm-hmm. And again, I think if you look at life in terms of that was a wonderful experience, I was really proud and lucky to have that experience. Mm-hmm. I will always remember and treasure that experience. Mm-hmm. That is a whole lot healthier uh, and more sustainable, and you know, uh, than to be like, yeah, but that didn't get. That didn't work out, mm-hmm. or that didn't lead to some other things. Um, because I mean, that's also part of life too. Yeah. You know, is a lot of times things just don't work out, and sometimes they do. And you know, like with the uh, seven days in a while, like I made that happen. You mm-hmm. know, like I put myself out there. I flew to Cleveland without, you know, without a without a uh, place to, without like a, an assignment. I flew out there without, mm-hmm. you know, money. All I knew is I was going to spend like eight hundred dollars, and this was something that I had to do. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't do it, I would regret it for the rest of my life. So I did a, kick, a GoFundMe that went spectacularly well. You know, I ended up writing a piece for MEL Magazine, and then I published this ebook. And yeah, it didn't make, you know, $8,000, $10,000, $12,000. That would have been friggin' sweet. Uh, but I'm really, really proud that it exists. I'm really proud that people are reading it. I'm proud that, you know, Salon did a big piece on it. 
so yeah, I'm I'm choosing to see it as a as a big creative uh, and emotional uh, success, uh, and a bit of a and a bit of a commercial under underperformer. But but that's another interesting thing that I was trying to sort of get across in the Medium article was it's also interesting when you do this yourself for the first mm-hmm. time and you kind of understand, you know, it's sort of like being a parent. You know, it's like you have a set, you have a vague sense of what it's like, but until you actually do that and you know you are the person who uploads it and mm-hmm. you know the money goes into your bank account, like you don't know what it's like. Um, so I'm so incredibly happy uh, and proud and lucky that we made the choice to have a baby, and I'm proud that I made the choice to uh, to write this book and have this adventure. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so far, and yeah, I think there are great things that are you know going to come of it as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to the end of it, and I was like, well, I, the sequel has to be uh, that you, the follow-up is you go to Washington, D.C. and have the Juggalo March on Washington be the centerpiece of the next uh, thing. That, that that seemed the logical extension at the end Oh, to definitely, me. yeah. I mean, so. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the thing, is like when I uh, say it, so the premise of the book is, you know, I went to the Republican National Convention uh, and the gathering of the Juggalos uh, in the same week with my long last brother, uh, yeah, who I guess I'd seen him uh, about a month and a half earlier when he showed up unexpectedly at my front door in Marietta, Georgia, uh, sweating profusely uh, and carrying an enormous uh, homemade sword uh, that I'm pretty sure you could murder somebody with, uh, even without wanting to. It's one of those things where you hang it on a wall, uh, it falls, oopsie, somebody doesn't have a hand anymore. Um, so, so, yeah, so that was an, one of the things that we kind of sort of didn't really bond uh, on the first time that I met him. Uh, God, I must have been 17 years earlier? Yeah, 1999. I think think Armageddon uh, was playing in the movie theaters. For some reason, that made like a really strong impression on me. (laughs) Those two things were linked. Um, So, yeah, so the premise was, you know, that's kind of exploring the commonalities between these two sort of dissimilar things. You know, and kind of exploring both the gathering of the Juggalos and the Republican National Convention are sort of these uh, sort of uh, gaudy, vulgar, populist spectacles. Mm-hmm. Sort of instances, sort of also family reunions, which also fit in well because you know, sort of a family union between me and my brother. Um, and then, lastly, you know, it's kind of seeing how you know these sort of things have sort of changed places, mm-hmm. and how the gathering of the Juggalos, which at one point is sort of this uh, sort of crazy uh, uh, Fellini-esque uh, bacchanal, uh, has become increasingly kind of respectable and proper and even sort of political, mm-hmm. whereas the Republican convention has sort of devolved into this sort of nightmarish parade of insanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, so I was kind of looking for uh, ICP to be more political, and yeah, I think kind of something that really politicized the band and its fans was the FBI uh, uh, characterized uh, Juggalos as a loosely organized hybrid gang mm-hmm. in, I believe, 2011. And, you know, that had a, a very concrete effect on people's lives. Uh, you know, if you were getting divorced and you wanted custody and you were a Juggalo, you know, your partner can say, hey, my partner is part of a gang. Mm. And the FBI has kind uh, of characterized him as a gang and look mm. at his tattoo and look at his hair and look at, you know, his bumper sticker, like he clearly belonged to this violent gang. Uh, same thing, you know, like, if you want to join the army, like a whole bunch of different things. Mm. So, yeah, so I think that kind of radicalized uh, ICP. And they were always very anti-establishment, they were always very anti-rich people, they were always very uh, class conscious. But this picked that up a notch, you know, and that made, uh, I mean, yeah, I think all of hip-hop uh, and, and poor people sort of see law uh, enforcement as something of a, of a threat, as mm-hmm. an ambiguous or, or kind, of a, kind of a negative force in their community. Yeah. And this, I think, again, that, that went from being something kind of abstract to being something very concrete. Mm-hmm. From there, which like, the FBI is definitely kind of uh, profiling us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and like in the same ways that they profile uh, you know, African Americans, uh, they profile Muslims, right. uh, and they profile people, you know, with, with exotic seeming last names. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so I was kind of hoping that, you know, this would continue that. Uh, and, yeah, I got that in spades. And, yeah, definitely the big climax. Well, I mean, there are two climaxes in the book. 
uh, one of which is uh, Violet J announcing uh, to the delight and excitement of everybody that the insane clown posse, not unlike Martin Luther King, was going to be having a march on Washington. It's like a Martin Luther King, but with uh, more face paint and less dignity. A lot less dignity. Uh, so it's going to be amazing, and they've actually uh, they booked uh, you know the Capitol, and it's going to be insane. And yeah, I would not miss it for the world. Mm-hmm. And I honestly have no idea how it's going to play out. I mean, I hope that it plays out really well. I hope people are nice and respectable, and mm-hmm. that the overall impression is, my God, these are nice, uh, extremely misunderstood people, and all they want is to be treated like human beings and not to be uh, scapegoated and not to be you know, uh, made mm-hmm. to seem like the worst people in the world. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of me thinks, like, okay, this will be just, like, a giant shit show. <laughs> uh, and also, kids can be popping up, and, yeah, there will definitely be a tension between, you know, mm-hmm. what to happen and, and what might happen. Yeah. Uh, and they're expecting jugglers to be on their best behavior, mm-hmm. which, is, which is an interesting concept, uh, and one that I hope, uh, and have, have faith, will, will hopefully bear fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to read this one uh, little bit from the near the end of the book. It says, uh, Insane clown posse are responsible sane businessmen who pretend to be insane clowns. Donald Trump, in sharp contrast, is an insane clown who pretends to be a responsible sane businessman. <laughs> Violent J and Shaggy 2 Dope are good guys pretending to be supervillains. Donald Trump is a supervillain pretending to be a good guy. Which I thought, kind of, if you needed to sum up the entire book in, in one graph, I think that probably would do it right there. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally, totally. And I mean, that was part of me, uh, very very, uh, I don't know, uh, I wondered if, like, you know, I, I have a real history of, of going native. Uh, I have a real history of like, starting to uh, kind of explore these worlds and uh-huh. getting really, really excited about them. I mean, I wrote a series about uh, country music for the AV Club called National or Bust. Uh, and over the course of, of uh, writing it and listening to this music, I became a huge country music fan. I wrote a column about uh, pop music where I listened to all of the now that's what I call music uh, compilations in order. Uh, and I already kind of love pop music, but that kind of kicked my love of pop music up a notch. Uh, I wrote a book about uh, Insane Clown Posse and Fish fandom. I became a big Insane Clown Posse and Fish fan. So there was part of me that wondered, like, well, what if I have some weird moments? Some weird road to Damascus moment. Uh, I think about uh, Charlton Heston. Uh, that's kind of an interesting story where he was a hardcore Democrat. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a, a union leader. He, I think he was the president of, of the Screen Actors Guild uh, for a while. And I believe, well, it, it must have been uh, 64 election because he saw a billboard. <laughs> With uh, Barry Goldwater's uh, campaign slogan, which was, In your heart, no, he's right. Yep. <laughs> which is pretty fascinating. Because <laughs> there's like, obviously, on a conscious level, you find him abhorrent. You think he's creepy. You would never vote for him. <laughs> but like that little voice in the, in the middle of the night that says, Yeah, maybe he is right. Maybe, against all odds, maybe you should go for him. Like, yeah, that's not necessarily the thing you want to play up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of me wondered if I would have my Charles Heston uh, looking at a Barry Goldwater uh, billboard moment. Um, but no, if anything, it, it made me fear uh, and, and, and hate Trump supporters even more, kind of like being in their midst. Mm-hmm. There was just like a very weird, dark energy to it. Yeah. Um, and I think there was always kind of a weird carnivalesque atmosphere to political conventions. You know, you're putting on a show, you're rallying the base. Your, you know, there's an element of vaudeville uh, to it, but when you have people like Scott Baio uh, and Tony Zapata Jr., I mean, it already feels like this incredibly dated, weird, you know, sort of like 70s gone awry, you know, sort of like somehow uh, Battle of the, you know, Network Stars uh, became a political convention, you know? Right. Yeah, it's just very, very surreal. And I mean, that's the other thing is I wanted to write about it and then to release the book at a time when it was still fresh, when it was still happening. Right. Because I feel like already now, uh, now that I think we're reaching the end of the line, now that it seems like you restore some measure of sanity to the world by electing Hillary Clinton president uh, very, very soon. Like, it already seems kind of crazy. It already seems like this, you know, this sort of um, mass hallucination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he told me I had this really fucked up dream that that crazy guy from Celebrity Apprentice was the, you know, 
<laughs> and they were like, and he just, the, the phrase grabber by the pussy became incredibly important. Um, yeah. Uh, and Billy Bush became like one of the most important yeah. political figures in 2016. And oh, the Bush family would be very, very important to the election. Mm-hmm. Not Jeb Bush. Like he'd, he'd be out of the way pretty quickly. It was, it was Billy Bush. Yeah. Uh, and, and his locker room banter. Yes. About, uh, Far away from any actual locker rooms, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> and, and, about, and about wanting to move on Nancy O'Dell like a bitch. <laughs> One of the phrases that he meant is, I moved on her like a bitch. Yeah, what a do weird thing know, to say. Like, what? Like, do, I don't, do you know how human beings talk? You know? <laughs> I mean, he believe that he said it was locker room talk because he literally deducted into, like, a middle school. He's like, hey, you guys, it's Donald Trump. Uh, uh, see the girls? You want to just grab them by the pussy? And they're like, uh, please, we're, we're 11 years old. And you know more about female anatomy than you do. <laughs> Why do you wander around with such a jockstrap? It's creepy. Please go away. Uh, he's like, oh, I donated the gym. Anyway. But my point is that it already seems like this sort of weird, uh, weird mass hallucination that we all share. Mm. And that, God willing, we will all wake up uh, from November 9th. So I kind of wanted to get into the insanity of the moment. Um, I mean, you know, some of the models, incredibly pretentious models that I had were, you know, kind of fair loving Las Vegas. Uh, also, medium cool was kind of a big one mm-hmm. where, uh, yeah, kind of Haskell Wexler wanted to throw himself uh, into the middle of things. And there was part of me, I, I will concede, that was like, you know, it would be, be really dramatic if there was a riot here. It would mm-hmm. be really dramatic if I was in the middle of this riot. Um, you know, the same part of me is like, no, I can't do that. Like, that's awful, and I <laughs> shouldn't want violence to happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also an incredibly, uh, there were a lot of police there, mm-hmm. and I think that played a huge role in uh, keeping anything violent from happening, because right. I feel like, yeah, they were, they were kind of a preemptive presence, mm-hmm. where, yeah, you would have to yeah, realize any any kind of attack would be a suicide attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, on the scheme, I'm, I'm glad that it was just a terrible, hateful show of the worst uh, of what America has to offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not something where, you know, innocent people lost their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and oddly enough, the only, the only person I saw doing open carry was a uh, Muslim gentleman. Mm. Uh, yeah. And he was like, I need to protect my society, protect my people. Mm. Uh, and he had a very big, very scary-looking gun. Uh, and then two, two other also scary-looking guns. Um, but, yeah, I, I, yeah, for some reason, I, there was... You know, there, he seemed like a weirdly calming presence. Mm-hmm. You know, it seemed like, yeah, he, he didn't. Yeah, and also, yeah, the fact that there were so many other guns there. It was, it was like a cop convention and a gun convention, uh, in addition to being a political convention. <laughs> Well, as you describe in the book, and of course I've listened to Trump's speeches on this, uh, you know, law enforcement was definitely very, uh, people were very worshipful of, of law enforcement uh, at the Republican convention and that whole vibe. So maybe that had something to do with, you know, the... Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, you know, and also I mean, that's one of the things about Trump is that, you know, he has expanded the parameters of what's, what's acceptable in mainstream politics to include a bunch of stuff that, if you really think about it, are not acceptable at all. Mm-hmm. And a lot of stuff that has been used uh, historically to promote racist ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Law and Order was very much, uh, you know, let's bust the hippies' heads open. Uh, you know, very much Rockefeller laws, very much, you know... Uh, and then also, you know, America First was mm. used by sort of <laughs> people who were sympathetic to the Nazi cause. Mm-hmm. Charles uh, Lindbergh. Yeah, 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 totally. To be like, you know, let's, and their whole idea of like, you know, was like, let's not intercede on the, you know, to fight the Nazis because, you know, maybe what they're doing isn't so bad and maybe mm-hmm. the other side. Uh, so for him to literally just be like, and not even like use similar language, use the exact mm-hmm. same language, mm-hmm. you know, that like George Wallace was using, you know, and he's like, let's go beat up uh, people who try and integrate. Uh, yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's pretty horrifying. And mm-hmm. the openness of it, yeah. I think, is pretty... And, and again, you have this sort of fascinating uh, sort of subversion slash inversion of that at the Gathering of the Juggalos. Uh, and I write about how, you know, I spent two nights watching... Two nights watching wrestling, mm-hmm. uh, which was interesting to me, because, yeah, I think there's an element to me that definitely regresses when I go back to the Gathering. Uh, and it's like an opportunity for me to 
live out like the weird childhood that it never really had. Mm. I had a very traumatic childhood, and that was another interesting thing about going to it with my brother. Because you, know, you know we had uh, very traumatic childhood, mm. and we have the same uh, mother. We did not do a great job. Spoiler. Um, but we, you know, grew up in very different ways and grew up to be different people, mm-hmm. but we still have these kind of weird shared passions. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. And yeah, the highlight of the wrestling for me was uh, Colt Cabana, who I'm a big fan of, or a profile of him for, uh, for Fast Company. Like, really interesting dude. Uh, and yeah, if you're a, a Venn diagram of, like, my weird obsessions, uh, he hits a lot of them, where he's, like, the big juggler wrestler, but he's also a huge podcast guy. Like, he has the most popular wrestling podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just added to Howl uh, and Earwolf and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, he was wrestling as his character, Officer Colt Cabana. And, uh, yeah, this is kind of a character dreamed up by him and Weedman, uh, alternately known as Weedman 420. And he was like, well, what, what, uh, what character would get Juggalo's angry? Like, what juggle, what, uh, profession would get, uh, Juggalo to just, like, cheer, to boo enthusiastically, automatically, like, just seeing them? So it was a cop. Um, so yeah, he's kind of this corrupt, sort of evil, uh, you know, sort of fiendish cop. And yeah, he kind of made a big show of uh, saying, uh, uh, Juggalo lives don't matter. Uh, and then blue lives matter. And then he fought uh, in his big match, uh, Hornswoggle, uh, who is a little person wrestler from the WWE, who had a lot of success at the WWE. He actually uh, even starred in the motion picture uh, Leprechaun Origins, mm. which was their attempt to reboot the Leprechaun franchise without Warwick Davis. Not a big success. Mm. Uh, but as, as I write in the book, like it, it literally was the little guy in the sense that he was played by a little person, mm-hmm. uh, defeating police brutality like confronting priest brutality and defeating it, you know, to, to the roar of the crowd uh, and, and, and ecstatic cheers. So, like, symbolically, uh, it was the little guy beating police brutality, and then literally it was also uh, the little guy uh, defeating police brutality. So, yeah, it was very much, uh, it was re- re- yeah, very much inverted uh, at the gathering of the juggalos. And law enforcement definitely was seen as the enemy, as mm-hmm. the adversary as, you know, part of this corrupt system. Mm-hmm. Now, having said all that, though, did you find any Trump support among the jugglers? I have to imagine there's I did, some. I would, I, see, uh, yeah, when I was when I was trying to, to sell it, like, every time I go to uh, the gathering, I have to have, like, a good pitch. I have to have, like, a new idea, because people, people get a little bit tired. Um, so the, uh, the editor that I was working with said, oh, what I would love to do would be if you could write about... Uh, Juggalos who are huge Trump supporters, and I said that would be a fascinating article. I would love to write that. I'm not sure it exists, mm. and if it does exist, I'm not sure that I could find it. I mean, I kind of scrambled uh, at the very end. I didn't have press credentials. I was very much kind of going the uh, Gonzo sort of improvisational route. Uh, so that would have been interesting, and I could definitely see, uh, you know, some of the appeals that uh, ICP makes are similar to Trump. You know, there's this anti-establishment component to it. There's the, you know, um, David and Goliath element to it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they're sort of the uh, the underlying values are very, very different. And for Donald Trump, it's all about scapegoating the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. It's about saying, you know, your problems are caused by Muslims. Mm -hmm. Your problems are caused by Mexicans. Your problems are caused by, you know, transgender people trying to use the same bathroom as you do. Uh, and in St. Cloud Bossy, they take the opposite tack. They right. say, your problems are caused by the wealthy. Your problems are caused by people who are greedy. Your problems mm-hmm. are caused by people like Donald Trump, who profess to be, you know, sort of these uh, pillars of, of morality and virtue, mm-hmm. but clearly are very, uh, I guess, amoral would be a nice way mm-hmm. uh, to put it. So, and, and I think people assume that juggalos would be uh, Trump supporters because they think that juggalos are dumb and uneducated and poor. Um, and I would concede that a lot of uh, juggalos are uh, uneducated and do not have a lot of money. Um, but again, you know, in St. Juan Posse, like, their music has meaning. Uh, and part of that meaning is that they are very anti-rich people and they are very anti-wealth. Uh, they are very anti 
pretty much everything that Donald Trump stands for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if from a merely, like, being vulgar and tacky standpoint, like, yes, people would assume that Juggalos would be Trump mm-hmm. supporters. But in terms of the actual ideology, in terms of the actual lyrics, in terms of the actual uh, content of Insane Clown Posse, like, they're saying not only very different things, but uh, antithetical things. So, yeah. But one of the things I thought was kind of interesting was, because I think there'd be at least some Trump presence at the gathering, mm-hmm. uh, and also a Suicide Squad presence, mm-hmm. uh, that there would be a fair number of jokers. <laughs> like, no jokers. Hmm. Which I think really, really speaks to the failure of Jared Leto, who is oh. that I hate. With another person I hate with a, with a weirdly personal passion. Well, I'll, I'll join uh, you on that one. That was... <laughs> well, because again, here you are, you had, like a whole, a whole thing dedicated to like wicked clowns, <laughs> and you have an Academy Award winning guy who's in a billion dollar movie, and in a billion dollars despite nobody liking it, uh-huh. uh, playing like the ultimate wicked clown, and nobody is trying to emulate you. Like that, that is that is an epic fail, <laughs> especially since it seemed like his whole conception of uh, Joker was like he's an evil juggalo. <laughs> yes, and I say that as somebody who has not seen Suicide Squad and will not, unless he's paid a great deal of money to do so. Right. Absolutely. Hopefully that will happen. <laughs> what do y'all feel is that? Well, definitely, definitely. Um, well, we're getting close to the hour mark, and I haven't asked you hardly any questions I wrote down, but this is fine. I'm having a good time. Um, I wanted to quickly, uh, since you're one of my favorite movie writers, I, I was hoping I could do a, a lightning round with you of, of my some of my favorite directors and hope you could give me your top three for each, if that's okay with you. All right. I'll give it a shot. All right. There's okay, no wrong. I'm look like an absolute fool. All right. <laughs> uh, Quentin Tarantino. Oh, goodness. Uh, boy, well, I guess it's hard to beat the motion picture uh, Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie Brown uh, is a big one for me. Although, God, God dang, Lawrence Bastards and uh, Jingle and Chains, it's tough to choose between the two. Uh, I see them as being uh, kind of uh, sibling films, mm-hmm. uh, in part because of Christoph Waltz, in part you know, because they are both about kind of the revenge of their oppressed uh-huh. uh, and people bringing up the pain to their uh, oppressors. Um, so I'm going to be incredibly arbitrary and say Glorious Bastards from Jewish. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick. God, Stanley Kubrick. Um, oh God, that's a, that's, that's a good one. Um, hmm. Yeah, The Shining is a motion picture that always holds up, and that's kind of an interesting one for him because that's as close as he got to doing a sellout movie, making a movie that was very commercial, that was based on something commercial. But it is, I think, one of the scariest movies ever made, mm-hmm. and a movie that just holds up. You know, and the fact that something like Room 237 can exist, and that people can be having so many ideas about it, mm-hmm. so many decades later, I think speaks to, God, I also love Lolita. Oh, man, this is tough. Spartacus? No, Spartacus isn't anywhere near. <laughs> Uh, God, that's a tough one. Uh, and then Passive Glory and The Killing. Mm. Those are pretty much perfect motion pictures. Okay. So I'm going to say all of his movies tie. Okay, great. Uh, <laughs> there's, no, there's no wrong answers. Uh, Wes Anderson. We Wes Anderson. Ah, that's a good one. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, the last movie that he made, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, I wouldn't say that that was a comeback movie because he, you know, didn't really make that many bad movies at all. Uh-huh. Um, but that definitely has to be in the top three. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums, uh, I think it might be number one. I remember uh, seeing Royal Tenenbaums at the time and thinking, like, okay, that's really good, but it's self-indulgent mm-hmm. uh, and kind of slack in a way that Rushmore isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of saw that as being sort of like uh, Magnolia to Boogie Nights, where mm-hmm. a follow-up to a movie that's pretty much perfect, that's incredibly tight, that's incredibly concise. Um, but now I think that Magnolia and the Royal Tenenbaums are masterpieces on par with Rushmore and uh, Boogie Nights, if not in some ways greater. So yeah, so Royal Tenenbaums is definitely, uh, I think maybe number one. Okay. I think maybe Rushmore to uh, Grand Budapest Hotel and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm. Uh, I tie for number three. Why yeah. I really like that Fantastic Mr. Fox. That was great. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I can't wait to see that with my son. Oh, yeah, me too, me too. Uh, Coen Brothers. Coen Brothers. Oh, goodness, that is a big one. Uh, God, I don't know. Like, I think Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, 
I think that definitely has to be in the top three. Wow, really? Uh, so that's another film that it was that good. I I, I, I love the crowd. I, I think it was perfect, and it's a film that really, really uh, stays with me. Mm. You know, there's a there's a mood uh, to that film that I really, really love. I want, I love how sad it is. Uh, I love what an asshole uh, the lead character is. I love how heartbreakingly beautiful the music is, mm-hmm. and how it doesn't matter to the world in a lot of ways. I mean, that's you know, I, I find mm-hmm. movies and books about the creative process fulfilling, uh, fulfilling, uh, fascinating. You know, and I think that was part of it. Uh, and it's very rare that you see a movie about somebody who experiences so little success uh, and so little frustration despite being so obviously talented. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, God, The uh, Big Lebowski and A Serious Man, I think, are going wow. to be uh, also in my top three where I love A Serious Man. And it's another movie, yeah, where I can I can watch it uh, over and over and over again. And, yeah, The Big Lebowski is one of those where it's like, well, can it possibly be as good as people say? And like, yeah, it, it's pretty damn wonderful. Yep, that's my, uh, that's my favorite movie. But yeah, and if you and if you want to if you want to write some sort of think piece about how that man Big Lebowski is smarky and smug and blah blah blah, I hate joy. Everything must be shit, shitty. Uh, but like that doesn't take away from the fact that Big Lebowski is an amazing, wonderful, perfect movie that gives people joy. Yep. And that people will be loving like a hundred years from now. And yeah, Jeff Bridges is if not my favorite actor, then uh, definitely top five. And mm-hmm. uh, John Goodman definitely uh, oh, yeah. there as well. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, I think maybe, maybe their best performances. And that's saying an awful lot. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're pretty, 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 pretty great. The both of those. Absolutely. Uh, Fargo and uh, Raising Arizona. Is in, in oh, no, definitely. I mean, those are, I mean, they've just made so many great. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Uh, yeah, and definitely. I, you know, I'm hard to think. I love Miller's Crossing. Uh huh. are very, very few. Uh, not crazy about Lady Killer. Oh, who is? Uh, but other than that, uh, everything they did, and then I like Tom Hanks. I kind of like him doing weird, uh, sort of hammy. Yeah. Sort of look, <laughs> look how broad my accent is. <laughs> yeah. Um, Scorsese. Scorsese, ooh, that is a good one. Um, number one, I am going to say is, I'm going to say Goodfellas, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which is another movie that always uh, holds up. You you know find new things in uh, every time, and he actually just wrote about that for uh, since his decade. Uh, and it was interesting to sort of write about it as a dark comedy, and specifically to write about it as sort of a very meta dark comedy, and a uh, dark comedy that's like always playing with storytelling, always playing with objectivity. Um, there are all these great moments where uh, Ray Liotta just sort of breaks the fourth wall, mm-hmm. like literally able to just talk, talk to the camera. And again, it, it's rare that you have such an intense narrator and also one who is fundamentally uh, amoral. I mean, he, he's a piece of shit. Henry Hill is good looking and he's charismatic and it's a hell of a story, but really, he's an awful human being. Um, and, and Scorsese does it, which is interesting because, you know, she knows that if a character just kills a bunch of people, audiences will still like them. Mm-hmm. You know, audiences will still identify them and be like, well, maybe he had a reason or the people that he was dealing with were worse. Mm-hmm. And with that, you definitely can play the whole, well, compared to Joe Pesci, he was, he was, a, he was a boy scout. Mm-hmm. Um, but there'll be a moment, as in uh, Goodfellas, where uh, Ray Liotta uses, uses the N-word. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's obviously, like, very historically accurate. I'm guessing mobsters in the 1950s and 60s uh, they, they, they use some culturally insensitive languages. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Like the, same, like the same thing with like the Wolf of Wall Street. You know, it's like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't kill anybody, but he's a horrible human being, but he will beat his wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if part of you is like, well, yes, he does a lot of drugs, yes, he screws people over, yes, he has a crazy criminal lifestyle, but I still want to be that dude. Mm-hmm. You can't want to be that dude after you see him beat the crap out of his wife. And I believe it. I might be misremembering it. Like, you know, I think their child is, like, not too far from the brain in there. So, yeah, again, I think that's one of those interesting things that uh, he does where you kind of want to identify with these people and relate to them because they're so intense, because, you know, they're so charismatic. But, you know, he'll have these things that make it impossible. And, and deliberately so. Like, you should not like uh, either of those characters. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to be likable. Um, I'm going to say After Hours mm. uh, is, is a big one for me. I think that is a perfect comedy. 
comedy. I love, love, love that movie. I think there's not a bad scene in it. Like, everything in it is incredibly memorable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I'm going to go with another uh, offbeat choice, King of Comedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, and and again, uh, you know, uh, Raging Bull and and Taxi Driver, those are great, great, great films. Mm -hmm. But there's something about After Hours and King of Comedy, like, sort of their take on the world, their tone, uh, the characters that speaks to me in a really intense fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, and at various points in my in my life, I felt like we Popkin, and I felt like Jerry Langford. You know, I felt like uh, I felt like the nebbishy, desperate uh, guy. You know, wanting to, uh, to hold on to something uh, mm-hmm. successful. You know, and I felt like you know the successful guy, uh, sort of self conscious and awkward uh, and desperate to hold on to what he has mm-hmm. in a world that can be pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I have a soft spot for Casino, but that's my own. That's my own. Oh, thing. that's a, that's a great movie as well. You know, but again, I kind of I sort of talking about this before about like the follow up syndrome. Yeah. Uh, where you make a movie that's like a movie that everybody loves, but uh, more longer. Uh, that's a big part. More ambitious, more self indulgent. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I mean, you look at Casino not in the in, in, in the shadow or in the context of Goodfellas, and it's a masterpiece. It's a great, great film. And if you look at it in in the shadow and in the context. It's still a really good movie, uh, and I, I, yeah, I think they complement each other mm-hmm. uh, really nicely. Yeah. Um, but again, I mean, like, yeah, I think part of it is you know that the Robert De Niro's character is sort of deliberately less interesting, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not this you know charismatic hood. It's like basically a numbers guy, mm-hmm. it's like a Jewish numbers guy who like gets it over his head. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that is fascinating to me. Like, I love to see De Niro play those kinds of roles. Oh yeah. For like sure. this movie called the The Last Tycoon, where he plays basically Irving Thalberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's obviously not as Jewish as Irving Thalberg, but it's interesting because like Irving Thalberg's uh, sort of defining feature was he was a fixer. He was a problem mm-hmm. solver. He could like go someplace and then like uh, immediately into it what was wrong and then fix it mm-hmm. immediately. Uh, and yeah, so it was, yeah, very interesting to see De Niro play that play that very well and, and be very sharp mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to yeah playing these, these characters who are you know all id uh, and all rough edges and all violence and turmoil. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, so that. He, he, you might not believe this. Robert Jerry used to be a really good actor. <laughs> what? <laughs> he made a he, Now, hear me out here. Me out. <laughs> 70s, 80s, and 90s, he made a lot of great movies. <laughs> And he used to do stuff other than comedies, oh. which was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, the last one I had written down was Richard Linklater. Richard Linklater, oh goodness, uh, that is a big one. Um, you know, I uh, Days and Confused uh, has to be right up there. Uh, it obviously has to be top three. That is a great great film. Oh god, I totally have heard about that for the Simpsons decade. Um, Oh goodness! I am a huge, huge fan of Waking Life. Oh, me too. I love that movie. Uh, that probably, yeah. And I like that too. Um, again, we've kind of been talking about sort of like bookend movies, uh, companion movies, sibling movies. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, for me, uh, Scanner Darkly. Is oh yeah, I really like that movie. Great sort of yeah. companion piece. And again, it, it's kind of you know sort of Waking Life is about kind of like the positive aspects, mm-hmm. sort of college and opening your mind and sort of drug culture uh, and asking questions. And sort of Scanner Darkly is the dark side. And sort of like, well, what happens when everything goes negative? What happens when you know uh, the pay or the pleasure ends, and mm-hmm. sort of the pain and desperation and addiction begins? And it's also a great uh, Keanu Reeves performance. Oh yeah! Like I think uh, I think there are at least ten ten Keanu Reeves movies that I can say great, 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 great. John Wick I would include among them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a great Scanner Darkly movie. Yeah, it's a great Keanu Reeves movie, and I've read that like such brilliant casting. Mm-hmm. You're a fantastic, but not a writer, like casting only people with drug problems. Uh, ended up giving it an interesting quality. So, yeah, that's definitely up there. I love Boyhood. Uh, I've only seen it once. Mm-hmm. Um, I love School of Rock. I mean, he's one of those guys. I love Bernie. Oh, Bernie I love Bernie. Yeah. Bernie would definitely be in my top five. And that's also one where I've seen it three or four times. And each time, I kind of get something new from it. And I also think that is probably my favorite Jack Black performance. Oh, yeah. Like, he has so many skills and so many talents, and that uses 100% of them. Yes, I agree. 
Um, well, we're recording this on Halloween, so I should, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you your favorite scary movies. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I enjoy... You know, I think I like horror comedies. I think that's kind of my jam, uh, as it were. I just wrote about uh, What We Do in the Shadows mm. uh, for my column, Subcalls, and oh boy, that is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Just very, very funny, and very, very memorable. Like, I think I've seen that three times. And the first time I saw it was at Sundance. And Jermaine Clement and the rest of the cast, they were doing a uh, Q&A in character, uh, <laughs> as if they were actually uh, vampires, and then they were making a documentary about the vampires. Uh, yeah, it, was, it was pretty perfect. I kind of wish that I wow. uh, recorded it on my, on my, uh, on my, on my uh, phone. Uh, yeah, it was kind of the perfect way to see it, but then, yeah, every time I've seen it subsequently, it, it's really held up. Uh, I love the Gremlins movies. Those are really wonderful. Uh, Beetlejuice uh, is great. In terms of, like, actual terror, uh, The Shining is fantastic. Uh, the Exorcist mm-hmm. is really, really fucking scary. Yeah. Uh, William Friedkin knows how to scare the shit out of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, even his, like, non-horror movies, uh, they have this kind of... Uh, that kind of terrifying edge to them, mm-hmm. this sort of underlying sense of danger, of of of, of, of pain, of like craziness. Uh, yeah, kind of glad that he's he had a, had a bit of a comeback, mm-hmm. gone back to making movies that people actually see and like. Um, so yeah, that's a big one. Uh, but 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 Halloween. Mm-hmm. Terrifying, mm-hmm. absolutely terrifying. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Wes Craven movies mm-hmm. uh, as of late. Uh, Scream, yeah. yeah, sort of. It's uh, it's both a brilliant meditation on the essence of horror movies and the mechanics of horror movies, and a very effective horror movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just watched Scream Four for a column I write called First and Last, mm-hmm. uh, and it was interesting to see how kind of empty uh, sort of that formula had become since then. Oh yeah, uh, so I think it's kind of a kind of a testament to the success of Scream. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah? And what was what was new and hip and interesting in 1996 by 2011 was incredibly stale and dated. It was kind of a it was like sort of a tribute to Scream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like a fan fiction movie, uh, basically. And I'm like, eh, like it's sad that Wes Craven died. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that he had a whole lot to give the world <laughs> cinematically. Uh, if Scream Four was uh, where his mind was at. Well, of course, then there's the TV show that has been playing too. Well, yeah, 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 totally. Um, and that apparently is, is a big success. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm actually a little surprised they haven't rebooted the entire franchise. Hmm. Because everything uh, must be rebooted. Of course. Uh, I was actually kind of fascinated that it took so long to reboot the um, uh, Blair Witch. Um, huh. And I was also struck that it was a big failure. Like, yeah. I thought that, you know, that at least is a... And yeah, I guess their they're, um, the strategy of, like, kind of hiding that it was a Blair Witch movie until the very end. Mm-hmm. Like, really did not pay off at all. <laughs> and people were like, yeah, this this is like a shitty Blair Witch movie. Well, I mean, the, part of the original Blair Witch, and, and uh, this was the first horror movie I ever saw in theaters, was that it was right at the dawn of the internet. I was like, is this real? Like, I, I was like, I kind of knew it wasn't real, but I was like, is this real? I don't think that there's that quite potential these days for people to get caught up in that whirlwind of no, imagination. It, so. Well, it was sort of like, I don't know, I watched, uh, I'm not here, which I actually really loved, mm-hmm. watching Phoenix, uh, quit uh, acting to become a rapper. Uh, oh, that, that made me feel so weird watching that movie. <laughs> yeah, well, and I watched it, like, obviously, after all, everything. And I kind of knew, like, yeah, obviously, he was uh-huh. eccentric, but he's not actually you know, quitting right. to pursue a weird rap career. Um, and, uh, and um, yeah, but, so, but, but it's weird, because I still watching it, like, within, like, a six-month uh, period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was, I was still remembering it within the context of is this real or is this not real mm-hmm. uh, where you know, I think if you if I were to watch it now that would be a completely different experience sure uh, actually one thing that if I were Hollywood um, I would reboot uh, The Craft mm. uh, because that was a movie that has a great premise that uh, girls love that have enormous nostalgia mm-hmm. not very good um, and those are, I think yeah definitely the kind of thing I, I would say the same thing for Hocus Pocus premise. personally but oh definitely definitely <laughs> Like people are like, oh, desecrating Hocus Pocus. Oh, Hocus Pocus desecrates itself. <laughs> totally, but that doesn't, that doesn't keep people from being like, and again, like Space Jam. Space yeah, Jam yeah, let's, let's bring it back to Space Jam with oh, that, I, yeah. I can't, I can't call back here. Like, you have completely desecrated the spirit of uh, Lola Bunny would have nothing to do with the current incarnation 
uh, they took a bunny that was hypersexualized and sexualized her even further. All of the sex scenes are very disturbing. <laughs> now I'm anticipating nerds being angry about a R-rated space jam too. <laughs> well, in fact, she was the exact wrong filmmaker for it. <laughs> and, and since the cat who made your character was very confusing. Um, that Mountain Dew product placement was not as good as in the original. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now I totally want to. I, mean, I totally want to start an internet campaign to get well, actually direct to space jam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the success of Sausage Party uh, proves that uh, we need more R or X rated animated films. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, I've kept you more than an hour, but I really appreciate it. And, and I, like I, I said, I, I hardly asked you anything I wanted to, to ask you, but I still had a great time. But um, if, well, you, awesome, if you'd uh, come back sometime, I'd be lo- glad to have you. So That sounds great. I, it was a pleasure. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. No problem. Have a great afternoon. All right, you too. Bye. All right, bye.